the National Archives podcast series, Damaged, Disturbed and Dismembered, Disability and War in the 20th Century, by Dr. Julie Anderson. Before I start, I'd like to say thank you to all of the National Archives staff who organized this event and invited me here. In particular, Parveen, who's made an awful lot of effort in order to bring Diversity Week to all of us. And I think the National Archives is setting an example in featuring groups of people who have remained in many ways hidden from history and historical analysis. I would also like to thank Sarah, who contacted me some time ago to find out if I would be interested in talking about the history of disability at another event. In addition, I would like to thank the Wellcome Trust, who has generously funded much of my research over the years. I would also like to include a caveat that when I'm talking about disabled people in this presentation today, I'm referring to them in the way that disabled people have been discussed historically. In no way is what I present in this paper indicative of my own view of disabled people, and I apologize in advance for any offense from these references or language may cause anyone in the audience. On a recent trip to the United States, Prince Harry was seen on television with a disabled soldier from the recent conflict in Iraq. In this clip, Prince Harry talks about the impact of the soldier's disabilities and asks the public to not forget him and others like him. Those that did not give up their lives in the conflict, but instead have to deal with the ravages of war and its impact on their body, their mind, and when they return to civilian life, how to renegotiate their place in society. Both Princess Harry and his brother William have promoted the work of places like Headley Court, which is a rehabilitation centre, um, and other establishments in the UK. Indeed, they have tried to bring to light the problems and issues of those who have not lost their lives, as sadly so many have done, but have also tried to outline the issues that many soldiers face upon discharge through disability. In this first slide, we see a photo of Prince Harry with Mark Ormerod, who lost both his legs as a result of his service in Afghanistan. While many of this country's armed forces have tragically died in the conflict, the numbers of those permanently disabled through wounds has eclipsed that figure. The figures are actually few, but it is estimated based on statistics from the United States for every death in these recent conflicts that up to 10 people are disabled. Some of those that return from conflict have disabilities that would be classified as severe, multiple amputations and combined deafness and blindness. Others have injuries that are not so visible, post-traumatic stress disorder, what was called shell shock in the First World War and battle fatigue in the second. As a result of the atrocities they have seen, can also cause physical symptoms and can require many years of therapy. The Prince of Wales also funds a charity for those affected by the emotional stresses of war. As we can see from the next slide, the royal family has a close association with disabled ex-servicemen, as here we see the Queen Mother, who was the Queen Mother, who's obviously now not with us any longer, with disabled ex-servicemen um, and the two princesses sitting in their motorised wheelchairs and chatting to them. It's difficult to know for sure just how many disabilities are caused by war. Men, and they are historically often men, were expected to return to their homes and families after any conflict, especially major conflicts such as the two world wars, and in many ways be grateful that they survived. Many tried to forget their war experiences, and if a disability could be hidden, then it often was. 
Even severe disabilities and their impact could be masked by attitude and therefore men suffered quietly. Hiding depression with a never-say-die attitude was common and wartime hospital atmospheres, as we see here at a temporary hospital set up in the Brighton Pavilion, you can see they've kind of covered over the um, lighting there a bit, did not allow for self-pity as that might create a condition called invalidism which meant that the disabled ex-servicemen would become heavily reliant on others, a dependent and weak creature, and not be able to assume his place in society after conflict had ended. War and medicine have a close relationship. Put simply, without doctors to repair the broken bodies of servicemen, nations would soon run out of a fighting force. Many doctors suffered mental anguish at repairing bodies, only for them to be placed in peril once more. Much of the increasing level of, sur of survival rates, and therefore disablement over the century, is owed to advances in medicine and technology. Sadly, as technology becomes more deadly in the shape of weapons, medical care has also advanced in order to repair the damage that war can make on vulnerable bodies. Here we see a row of soldiers who have been gassed on the Western Front in the First World War. Their stance was memorialized by John Singer Sargent, whose painting, Gassed, all six meters of it, hangs in the Imperial War Museum. It has been argued as early as Hippocrates that war is good for surgeons, as it provides a number of the same types of injury for them to perfect their technique. The patients are young, usually fit, and therefore have higher rates of survival. New techniques in controlling infection and wound care have also reduced mortality rates, and modern types of transport can move a wounded soldier now to medical care in less than an hour. Today, I'll be talking particularly about British disabled ex-servicemen and women and their history, particularly in the two major conflicts of the 20th century. There are a huge number of documents in the National Archives that tell some of the details of those disabled in the many conflicts that Britain has been involved with in the 20th century. These documents are not just about combatants, they also involve civilians who were affected by the war, particularly those in the Second World War, who were injured when mainland Britain was bombed, which started in 1940 and whose 70th anniversary we have just commemorated. I have chosen a few from the First World War and some examples from the Second, which will outline some of the challenges faced by disabled ex-servicemen and later women, and how they were represented and supported in the period following conflict. I will be concentrating more on physical and sensory disabilities and less on the emotional trauma of war. One of the most contentious issues for the disabled ex-servicemen was the provision of pensions, and the National Archives holds a wealth of information on this subject. Pensions of some sort have been awarded to men who had fought for their country, but they had been of varying amounts. It was not until the highly industrialized First World War where death and maiming were conducted in a way that could be referred to as truly modern and industrial, that there were organizations specifically set up for administering the massive numbers of men returning home from the front who were too disabled to work full time, or in some cases at all. Before the war was over, the government had established the Ministry of Pensions at the end of 1916, beginning of 1917, whose job it was to administer the enormous number of pensions that were required. Doctors and nurses had done their best to ensure that these men survived, and it became the responsibility of the state to make sure that these disabled ex-servicemen were looked after as they returned to civilian life, a life for which they often had to be retrained. 
Although pensions for those who had undergone the horrors of the First World War were much higher than for those who had come back from the South African conflict in 1901, they were still subjects of controversy. The National Archives has a number of files that show the somewhat arbitrary nature of their award and how committees were instructed to limit the financial pressure on the Exchequer by awarding the lowest level of pension they could. Yet, by 1918, more than 400,000 ex-servicemen were in receipt of pensions. They were calculated on a system which judged disability in terms of percentages. For example, the loss of one arm and one eye, two or more limbs, or severe facial disfigurement counted as 100% disability. Some men with shell shock were given no pension whatsoever, and there was another group, um, those with venereal disease, which I'll talk about in a tick. The Pension Appeal Tribunal was set up in 1916, owing to continued dissatisfaction with the rate of pensions awarded. They consisted of a disabled man from the Army and Navy, usually discharged officers, a chairman who was often a solicitor, and a medical officer who was not usually allowed to vote, although the other two were. Often, the men who had given parts of their bodies to defend their nation felt humiliated, and for those that could not hold down a job, dragged themselves through lives full of poverty and often pain caused by their injuries and insufficiently supported disabilities. As soon as it had become apparent that their disability was permanent, they had also been immediately discharged and in many cases felt abandoned by their country. As the state failed to fully support them, disabled ex-servicemen were often supported by charitable institutions. And these are also very important, and there's a lot of information in the National Archives about these as well. One of the largest and well-supported well of these charities was St. Dunstan's, which still provides care for disabled ex-servicemen today. The original St. Dunstan's opened in 1914 in a house in Bayswater, which was then moved to a property in Regent's Park, funded by donations from a private financier from the United States, and it catered for blind and sight-damaged ex-servicemen, both officers and regulars exclusively and only. This was not a small venture, but occupied some 15 acres of prime real estate in Regent's Park. The members were taught a wide range of new skills at St. Dunstan's, including braille, typing, telephony, poultry keeping, vegetable gardening, and basket making. Assistance provided by St. Dunstan's did not end with the conclusion of a training course. Blind ex-servicemen were also given help in funding jo finding jobs Financial advice was provided, loans granted, and both legal and medical advice was available for free. Arthur Pearson, the chairman of St. Dunstan's, who had been blinded in the, in the war, and his successor from 1921, Ian Fraser, who was a member of parliament from 1924, tirelessly promoted their institution and the plight of blind ex-servicemen. This next slide shows a concert in aid of St. Dunstan's, one of the many appeals for public funds, which they were very, very successful at gaining. This next slide shows the men from St. Dunstan's in a walking race, part of the way that the blind ex-servicemen from St. Dunstan's regained more confidence in their newly blinded bodies was in the sporting arena. By 1918, 48 boats had appeared on Regent's Park Lake in order for them to practice rowing for competitions that culminated in an annual regatta. Although there are no accurate figures, of course, the races were often watched by a crowd, so a crowd could be any number of people, who attended these events who were apparently especially keen on the blind one-armed races. 
This slide shows the men sitting in their boat and standing next to it with their cocks, who was a nurse. The level of competition in rowing was fierce, with members trying to woo the lightest nurses to act as cocks on their boat. Cheating occurred, of course. At the 1921 regatta, the chaplain of Bungalow Annex stole the skulls of the champion team, forcing them to use a much inferior set, one of which broke during the race. The regattas were a feature every year right up until the Second World War. The strenuous efforts of interblind competition contrasted with the ragtime sports often held for the members where the men invited their wives and children and enjoyed a day of games, including wheelbarrow races and a cigarette, a cigarette race. By the way, a cigarette race is a combination of running and lighting a cigarette. The competitor runs to a nurse who lights a cigarette for him and then he runs back to where he started and the first one back wins. It's a very healthy sporting pursuit. <laughs> a society that had been through the horrors of war and its associated loss and feelings of guilt was driven by the belief in rebuilding. For such a society, the pathetic remains of ex-servicemen, whether limbless, mad, dirty, drunken or vagrant, that were seen begging on the street after the First World War were a horrific and embarrassing sight. What more pleasant for a society faced with the fallen heroes in the gutter than the sight of the upright, rehabilitated and hardworking, blinded hero of St. Dunstan's? The role of St. Dunstan's was to ensure that their men did not beg on the street and continue that long history of the blind beggar. St. Dunstan's were blind men with dignity, conferred not only by their status as war heroes, they proudly displayed their golden red flaming torch, which was a St. Dunstan's badge, on their coats as they walked arm in arm through Regent's Park. The men of St. Dunstan's were acceptable as they took the air in the park because they could still communicate within the constructs of normal society. Their blindness did not terrify or repulse. Maiden aunts, Edwardian stockbrokers, or small children walking to London Zoo were not offended by these groups of men confidently striding around the park. By comparison, some of the pathetic mangled remains of shattered humanity that had returned from the trenches were not so easy to look at. The men from St. Dunstan's place in the Remembrance Day ceremony in particular, on November the 11th, was assured. Reports in the newspapers made constant reference to the dignity of those unseeing eyes. The notion that their last vision had been one of death, putrefaction and destruction gave them a sort of moral authority. As the men of St. Dunstan's were so well looked after, St. Dunstan's became the target for would-be blind ex-servicemen. These men pretended to be blind in order to enjoy the benefits of St. Dunstan's, with its sports, high levels of support, and location, not to mention its standing in the public's esteem. Usually, this onset of blindness took the form of a mystery knock on the head and a sudden disappearance of vision. Doctors would employ highly scientific methods to test for these cases of blindness, um, including uh, carrying a coloured ball around the room with them when they were interviewing the man to see that if, if his eyes followed it, um, was one particular, uh, particular way of them doing it. However, doctors tended to be kind to these men who had given up so much in the conflict. One wrote, my usual plan in cases of difficulty was to assume that the man was what he said himself to be, and I admitted to him to the hostel with particular directions that he should be watched. For a few days all would go well, and then after a little while the man would almost always become careless, 
and at times forget his part. However, the problem of imposters was so worrisome that a detective was placed in St. Dunstan's to keep an eye on those who might be pretending to be blind. This was done in, a, again, another highly scientific way, um, almost as well as the doctors I was, I was speaking about. Obstacles were placed in front of the would-be imposter to see if they noticed them. If they were blind, I assumed that they might have fallen over them, I guess. And other nefarious means, such as random balls thrown to test for a reaction we used to see um, if everyone there was truly blind. Their time and investment in these spies in St. Dunstan's yielded two malingerers. While this may have seemed harsh treatment for those who were so desperate, St. Dunstan's did make provision for those who had not lost their eyesight as a direct result of battle. For soldiers who had contracted venereal disease and lost their sight, there was no pension available. St. Dunstan's did their best to help these men. By 1917, a number of them had been admitted to St. Dunstan's due to blindness by disease, and there was a lot of fear about disease and blindness. The appeals for them on behalf of the doctors and administrators were carefully constructed in order that the likelihood of a man gaining a pension was much more likely. In 1917, the ophthalmologist Arnold Lawson, who worked very closely with St. Dunstan's, successfully persuaded the Pensions Appeal Tribunal to examine each case of syphilis, for example, on its merits, and that's his term, not mine, um, and understand the distinction between acquired and congenital syphilis. In many cases, the doctors at St. Dunstan's were likely to affix blame to the medical examiners in the first place, who, it was argued, should not have accepted the man for service. So that's how they were able to get around it and get pensions for their, their, their men. St. Dunstan's also provided a space for those who had suffered severe facial disfigurement. Many of these men, even those who retained their sight, found it virtually impossible to reintegrate into society and often went to special farms, particularly in Kent, to work um, and, and essentially um, hide themselves. Benches were painted blue to warn the public, should they sit on them, that they risked exposing themselves to someone with severe facial injuries. Um, as we can see, sympathy and understanding were constructed differently depending on the type of disability. Although many of the men who were at St. Dunstan's valued the support in rebuilding their lives, they did not always like the way they were treated by the public. This is illustrated by one blind veteran's remarks to a nurse while in St. Dunstan's in 1917. Down the room they come, staring at us as though we were animals at the zoo. Then stopping in front of a particular man, they'll decide he'll do, and they won't be ashamed to take him out. They'll even enjoy parading him before their friends. Being fairly passable in my uniform with my military cross, I'm in great demand. Whereas old Pods, who's in Mufti, and Jimmy, who's disfigured, they never get a chance. Another large institution um, that cared for huge numbers of disabled ex-servicemen was Queen Mary's at Roehampton, which is just outside London. This slide shows men from Roehampton standing next to each other posing for a photo in country life. Men with limb amputations were common, obviously, during the First World War as new and deadly types of weaponry, such as bombs full of shrapnel were capable of blowing off arms and legs. In addition, there were no antibiotics to cure infection. If a serviceman was wounded and wound got infected, which was highly likely, amputations were done to save the man's life, although at times it was too late. 
A large percentage of these amputees went to Roehampton to have their artificial limbs fitted. There were just over 41,000 men who lost one or more limbs as a result of the fighting. And before the war, artificial limb making was a small craft-based industry. With the large number of soldiers with amputations, however, artificial limb making became a larger industrial business. However, each limb still had to be individually crafted in order for it to be fitted properly. This took time and many fittings, and so many, then so many of the companies operated out of the basement at Roehampton Hospital. Although the limbness could invoke feelings of pity or horror, many people came to Roehampton to visit the disabled ex-servicemen there. Hospitals were not just intimate spaces where patients and doctors were ensconced and where treatment to minimize the effect of disability took place. Hospitals were also places where a curious public went to see patients. And here is a slide of Queen Mary, surrounded by a number of other people, inspecting a soldier with a rolled up trouser, so we can see his prosthesis. Long stay military hospitals were a favorite for a day out when they were open to the public and the visits, as we saw earlier from the men at St. Dunstan's, were not always appreciated. Here we have a group of soldiers with leg amputations walking between parallel bars. Hospital visiting by middle-class women during the war, bringing comforts and feminine company, were relatively common. But when the conflict was over, people from all walks of life went to see those still in military hospitals or homes. People also went to see sporting events that featured disabled ex-servicemen. In August 1917, a cricket match was held between the Arms and Legs, a team of amputee ex-servicemen, and an able-bodied team at Lord's Cricket Ground. A local schoolmaster reported in his diary, I stood and watched for a time, but it was too worrying to me to see a man on one leg trying to bat, although our captain told the bowlers to bowl easy balls. Some of the women cried to see them, but they were as cheerful as crickets and hopped on one leg from the pavilion with their one leg and without crutches. And here is a slide of an ex-serviceman being pushed in a race by a, nun, a nurse who, um, it all looks very precarious. As full pensions were difficult to procure, other ways of supporting disabled ex-servicemen after the First World War were devised, particularly those that did not impact on the exchequer. Some systems, surveyed, some systems survived a number of years, one of which was the King's National Roll, which was set up in 1919 and provided um, companies with special privileges should they hire 5% of disabled ex-servicemen. Unfortunately, the ones they tended to hire were the ones who were least disabled, so it left those men with much more severe dis disabilities unemployed. While the King's National Roll was not a huge success, it was still wound down by 1944, so it lasted quite a while. There are other groups that uh, lasted a much longer time than then. One of these is the British Legion. The British Legion was established in 1921 and gave disabled ex-servicemen a more influential voice. It pushed for a preferential treatment for disabled ex-servicemen and tried to abolish rules set up by the Ministry of Pensions that a claim for a disability pension for war service with them made within seven years of the war's end. So I wanted to stop that. It provided support for disabled ex-servicemen, opened up special institutions such as sanatoria for those with tuberculosis, a disease which it was argued could be aggravated by war service. The work of the British Legion is closely allied with a symbol which we have come to associate with war in the 20th century. 
In a television advertising campaign recently, men were represented by poppies formed in the shape of, the, of a man, holding hands with a partner and child. This demonstrates the enduring power of the poppy as a symbol of war remembrance. No other war charity has been enduring as Poppy Day. Still today, poppy sellers stand on the streets and the shopping centres in the cold, wet, late autumn weather, selling scarlet poppies that represent the blood spilled in battle many years ago and reminding the public of wars gone past. How did this come about and what did it mean for a disabled ex-serviceman? An American, Miss Moina Michael, originated the wearing of a poppy when she read a poem apparently in Punch. Um, by John McRae, which was called Flower of Remembrance. Now, I'm not sure if this is what kind of story this is, but it could be true, it might not be, but then this is history. Who knows? In 1918, she used some money given to her by other war secretaries at a meeting in New York to buy poppies, which she gave to the other secretaries to wear. The idea then spread from New York to France and then to Britain. In Britain, they were sold by the British Legion from 1921, although the poppies sold on the streets in the UK were actually initially made in France for the first year. In 1922, the British Legion Poppy Factory was opened in Richmond with a total of five men in its employ. In this slide, we see disabled ex-servicemen working at the Poppy Factory and also a close-up of the Scarlet Poppy. The purpose of the poppy factory was to employ those with severe disabilities who found it difficult to gain employment elsewhere. By 1938, the poppy factory, which started with five employees, employed 382 severely disabled men. Between 1939 and 1947, 15.5 million poppies were made and 55,000 wreaths. The British Legion factory did not make poppies year-round, although you would think they would need to, making 15 and a half million poppies. They also sold other products in order to support the disabled ex-servicemen who worked there. One advertisement in 1939 exhorted potential buyers that, quote, the spirit of Christmas must be kept alive despite the war, and suggested buyers purchase Christmas crackers, um, holly balls, tags, jigsaw puzzles, and cut-out calendars. The enduring power of the poppy was used by way of support and had an international voice. In 1943, for some interesting reason, poppies were dropped by airplanes over German-occupied France. I need to work a bit more on that and find out more about it. But in the main, the sale of poppies supported the work of the British Legion in its efforts to support disabled ex-servicemen and their families. The British Legion maintains their influence and continues to have high levels of public support, recently even from a prime minister. I have concentrated on some examples from the First World War, and in this next section I will tell you some stories about disabled ex-servicemen in the second. In this first section, I would like to refocus on the wartime work of disabled civilians as opposed to those disabled as a result of conflict, and understand some of the ways that disabled people were culturally represented in order to promote the war effort. And indeed, for many, the war provided disabled people with a space to demonstrate their abilities and impact on legislation and attitudes towards disabled people after the war was over. There is a current view that disability is more tolerated in the armed services than it has been in the past. While this may be the case, and as a historian I cannot know that for certain, during the Second World War disabled people did take an active part in the war effort. Despite the large numbers of disabled people entering the workforce, although they were never conscripted, there were still many jobs that needed to be filled in their desperation to find workers, especially for the munitions industry, levels of fitness grading were relaxed. 
quite a lot. Although disabled people were technically not grade A fit, it was generally seen to be accepted that as long as the disability did not affect the person's ability to work, they would be passed as fit. The job was judged to fit the person as opposed to the person's fitness for the job. It was how the saying went. Ms. B, a profoundly deaf woman, was passed fit and sent to work in a munitions factory. Um, she worked in shell assembly after she finished her education. She was surprised at being passed and upon being interviewed said, I didn't think they passed me fit, but they passed everybody in the war. Possibly unknown to Ms. B, some disabilities were particularly sought after for certain positions and deafness was considered an advantage in some of the more noisy functions of shell assembly. Many deaf people worked in isolation areas making shells where the noise level was considered damaging to those who could hear. And due to the lack of safety equipment to protect hearing, it was believed that since deaf people were deaf anyway, it really didn't matter and so therefore they were the best people for the job. Unfortunately, it's a testament to the danger of working in shell assembly that Ms. B was, um, had her hands blown up in um, another accident uh, with a faulty detonator and unfortunately lost most of the fingers um, on her hands. But after recovery and rehabilitation, which took about a year, she resumed her factory work as a messenger girl. Despite being disabled even further, Ms. B was evidence of the necessity of all workers. Rather than being made to give up work through disability, she was instead retrained for another type of job. Disabled people who were not involved in industry also did their part in the war effort. Groups of blind women joined the Dig for Victory campaign, um, where people used all the land to uh, grow food. Disabled women knitted, sewed, worked in industry and farming, and as we saw from the example of Ms. B, and generally did what they could to contribute to the war effort. A group of blind women donated their pension increase to the war effort. They were the only disabled group who actually got a pension before the establishment of the welfare state after the Second World War. There was also a number of people who were part of the war effort who had disabilities and who became quite well known. I'll mention three of them here quickly. One was a well-known figure and the other two were less so. Um, there were few frontline forces personnel who became famous for their bravery and who were marveled at by the public who thought their efforts, despite disability, were amazing. One of these was Douglas Bader, who I'm sure you've all heard of. He lost his legs as a result of a flying accident in 1933 and yet came back into the Air Force with a lot of difficulty, but he did re-enter re the Air Force and flew his Spitfire many times to Germany to bomb cities. Ba Bader was seen as a poster boy for the Air Force. He was dashing and good-looking, and his bravery in the face of flying as a double amputee was considered a, a virtue of British bravery and pluck under the wartime conditions. The message was, if this man with a double amputation can fly across the channel and bomb Germany, everyone should be doing what they could to aid the war effort. Eventually, Bader was shot down, as they often were. His artificial legs were so badly damaged, he had to have a new pair sent from the UK through the Red Cross. He was put in colditz the famous prison for officers, where he made lots of plans to escape, as was natural, and everybody did. And he made several attempts, but he was thwarted when the German prison officers took away his artificial legs. Another less well-known disabled W amputee who flew for the RAF was Colin Hodgkinson. Hodgkinson was originally in the Fleet Air Arm and was injured quite badly when he had an accident in a training craft. It was impossible for him to remain in the Navy as he could not manage on his artificial limbs, which were made of metal and not really manufactured to cope with the rolling swell of the sea. So he joined the RAF. 
Many in the RAF were able to remain in the forces as they were stationed in England and did not have to manage their disabilities in hostile environments. Hodgkinson was also shot down and apparently remembers coming to from his unconscious state with a German soldier who said to him, who pulled him out of the wreckage of the plane, and the German soldier said to him, wow, you must hate us so much because you're here without your legs. Disabled um, men also worked in support roles away from the front line. These backroom boys, as they were known, was, were as important to the working of the military machine as those that were on the front line in this highly mobile war. As Marshal of the RAF, Lord Tedder wrote, and he has provided me with a quote of the day, the backroom boys are some of the salt of the earth. Salt is sometimes used for killing weeds, and the weeds do not like it. One of these backroom boys was Air Commodore Huskisson, who was in charge of armament development for the RAF. On the 15th of April 1941, he was blinded in an air raid in London. He went back to work as soon as his wounds were healed and was able to take up his old job in the Air Ministry. He developed techniques for, using, um, for doing his job, including, including using raised dots over blueprints, and would turn devices around and around in his hands to get the feel of them. Despite the publicity given over to amputee airmen such as Douglas Bader, there were significant numbers of disabled people who did their bit for their country. These nameless people are hard to find, but they are there, working in offices, in industry and farming, and on the front line. It's common to talk mostly about men when we think of those disabled in war, yet many women are affected by conflict as they can be widows, victims of enemy action, and more recently, combatants. One of my best finds of information on this subject is a file I came across in the National Archives some years ago. In the Second World War, the number of women permanently disabled with dependence to support added another 17,500 people to the list that the Ministry of Pensions had. The medical and cosmetic requirements of female pensioners were different from that of their male counterparts, as they had roles of, as wives and mothers, and in some cases as wage earners. The ministry posed the question, do we, in determining the degree of disablement, give proper weight to the effect of the war disablement on the function of childbearing and on cosmetic value? The answer is absolutely. Ministry of Pensions did a lot a certain bearing on cosmetic value. An example of this was the supply of artificial limbs. Both women and men were provided with free artificial limbs if their amputation had been caused by war service or as a result of an air raid. However, more attention was paid to the aspect of aesthetic appeal for women than men, whose artificial limbs were based on function. Although the aluminum legs were lighter and often had superior movable joints, the wooden legs were preferred and issued to women due to their more aesthetic appeal. It was noted by the Ministry of Pensions, the wooden limb is preferred by many women as giving a better cosmetic result and causes less damage to stockings. The other issue relating specifically to women that the Ministry of Pensions had to consider was that of childbirth in the family. The strain placed on a disabled woman of having a baby and then looking after a child was, be was believed to be heavier than that of her able-bodied counterpart. Before the advent of other reliable birth control methods, sterilization was one way in which women were able to limit the size of their families. In this rich source at the National Archives, I found letters to the ministry from women, from women pensioners requesting additional funds for sterilization. Mrs. I was an example of the Ministry of Pension's willingness to assist with particular issues relating to disabled women's control over their fertility. 
Mrs. I had become a paraplegic when her pelvis had been crushed under an air raid shelter. She had one child who was born blind, and after her second child was born, she wrote to the Ministry of Pensions requesting sterilization. Other conditions which affected a woman's ability to care for a large family were taken into consideration, including tuberculosis. An unnamed woman wrote to the Ministry of Pensions to inform them that she wanted to be sterilized, and she asked the ministry to pay for it because both she and her husband had tuberculosis. As the responses from the ministry were not always clear, or there, unfortunately, it is not to say that the Ministry of Pensions provided support for all women in this situation, but the files show and give an inkling of its willingness to consider these requests. And it demonstrated more understanding of the, the role of the Ministry of Pensions towards its women pensioners. The fact that these women wrote the letters at all may demonstrate that there, were, there was little assistance available on offer for disabled women, but it also shows that the women who'd been injured in war felt that they had some right and recourse to assistance from a ministry that had, up until very recently, been the preserve of wounded male soldiers. Despite the efforts of disabled people during the war, a regime that ensured that disability was lessened was still paramount to a nation requiring enormous manpower to maintain the war effort. Rehabilitation was one of the most important developments in physical medicine during the war. As Richard Titmus noted, the creation of a framework for a national rehabilitation scheme may thus be recorded as one of the chief successes of the government's emergency medical service. And in the following slide, we see some amputees doing some movements in the gym. By 1941, rehabilitation was the most fashionable word in rehabilitation. But what is it? Essentially, it was defined as, in its strictly medical sense, it means the process of preventing or restoring the loss of muscle tone, restoring the full fluxions of the limbs, and maintaining the patient's general health and strength. Generally, rehabilitation consisted of the process of restoring people to a level of fitness and function and reduce the impact of what became known as residual disability. It became virtually impossible for any patient to avoid rehabilitation as it was provided for all military and civilian casualties and those um, sort of working in industry as well. And here we can see some more people experiencing rehabilitation, including being driven outside in a bed because it was an extremely important part of rehabilitation was also being out in the open air. Rehabilitation methods were applied to a wide range of people, including those with spinal injury, who had been thought to be hopeless cases with an 80% mortality rate within five years. Most of them were treated at Stoke Mandeville, and there were about 300 to 500 of them treated at Stoke Mandeville at this time from 1944. Active physiotherapy was used and remedial exercises um, while the patient was still in bed. So this was quite radical um, to do this rehabilitation. Re doing rehabilitation on someone who broke their leg was one thing, but doing rehabilitation on people who had um, spinal injury and paralysis was quite something else. While the patient was still in the ward, attending to his exercise and physiotherapy, the curing process through competitive activity began. The majority of Stoke Mandeville's early patients were young male ex-servicemen, um, and there were a couple of women. 
um, and who had been injured and were often eager to outdo one another. So they kind of used a kind of a, a, a psychological way of getting these people to do something. And also, unfortunately, they were trying to keep them busy because often what would happen is as soon as they arrived, they would try and commit suicide. So they're also trying to keep them busy as well. Doctors exploited the competitive instincts of the men, thereby getting them to participate actively in their treatment. Exercise sessions were carried out in the wards in an attempt to encourage those still in bed. Competitions held in the wards included the timed dressing exercise in which the patients had to get out of bed, dress themselves and get into their wheelchair. The record for this competition was four minutes. Stoke Mandeville is credited with the creation of disability sport in the UK. The first move towards more active sport and games came not from doctors or, or physiotherapists, but came from the patients themselves. Ludwig Gutmann, the neurosurgeon in charge of Stoke Mandeville, came upon a group of patients trying to hit a ball with upturned walking sticks. He immediately went into the gym and began to practice what he dubbed wheelchair polo. And that is somebody playing wheelchair polo. This slide shows some of the players of the game. A competition was held regularly at the hospital, patients pitting themselves against orderlies and physiotherapists. The large ungainly wheelchair, which you can see in the picture, hampered the sporting competition somewhat as it weighed about 50 pounds um, without the occupant. Um, but the game was entered to with a great deal of enthusiasm. Although the player's enthusiasm did not wane, wheelchair polo was abandoned after less than a year as it was decided it was too dangerous. Players were repeatedly hit on the head with mallets and, the, and there were regular first aid sessions following the games. The patients um, were very disappointed, not sharing the hospital's concern for their safety. One ex-patient later wrote, if you didn't come out of your chair at least once during the course of the game, you were considered by the others to be a sissy. The awarding of pensions during and after World War II could still be problematic. My own grandfather was injured in a bomb blast in Loughborough and was discharged A-grade fit, although he had a permanent injury to his hip, which made him limp, and which also prevented him from taking up his offer of a contract as a professional footballer at Charlton Athletic. However, some rules had changed. No servicemen or women were discharged until they had been fully rehabilitated and the impact of any residual disability lessened. As we have seen, many of them remained in the forces in other jobs. After the Second World War, the 1944 Disabled Persons Employment Act was legislated, which still made special provision for disabled ex-servicemen, owing to the pressures in Parliament from disabled ex-servicemen who were employed there. Employment was considered an opportunity for disabled people to show themselves worthwhile, and as consultant surgeon to the RAF, Reginald Watson-Jones noted in The Lancet in 1944, the Disabled Persons Employment Act would, quote, create the opportunity for employment of the disabled, not because the country is in peril, but because the disabled are capable and worthy of employment. While these concessions were granted and jobs were reserved for disabled ex-servicemen only, the job of lift operator and car park attendant were not the careers that many disabled servicemen fancied. Other special privileges were granted. Some disabled ex-servicemen received small cars with hand-operated controls which were not available to those whose disability was not war-related. Rehabilitation was still important for everyone as we can see from this wonderful game of bed cricket which is possibly my favourite photograph of all time. 
By the 1960s, the lines that marked disabled ex-servicemen out for special treatment began to blur. Instead of ignoring protests by disabled civilians, which they had in the past, disabled ex-servicemen began to take more of an active role, riding their motorised transport through London to flood Trafalgar Square in 1967 with a group DIG, or Disablement Income Group, which was started in 1965. As the memory of wars faded, disabled ex-servicemen often felt forgotten as well. And finally, I would just like to make the following point. There's barely a year goes by that countries like Britain have been involved in conflict of some variety in the 20th century. This country is also involved in peacekeeping missions which, where personnel can be in, injured, which results in disability. I've shown here that historically, disabled ex-servicemen have been treated differently from those whose disabilities are lifelong or become disabled throughout their life. My story ends here, as I'm only talking about the impact of war on disability in two world wars, but the fight for the rights of disabled people in this country, whether their disability is lifelong or acquired at some point, continues. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 22nd of September 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives, all rights reserved.